If you would, open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 11 as we continue our study of this great letter. Hebrews chapter 11, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. We are a culture saturated with a concept of belief or faith. Doing a quick image search would yield that understanding to you. Inspirational quotes about faith or inspirational quotes about belief. Here are a few that I found. Believe in yourself and you will be unstoppable. It doesn't matter what you believe, just so long as you're sincere. Believe and you shall succeed. Believe that there is good in the world. Or with faith, same root word in the Bible. Believe is essentially the verb. Faith is the noun. Never lose hope. Just when you think it is over, God sends you a miracle. Faith is like Wi-Fi. It's invisible, and it connects you to what you need. Sometimes the best thing you could do is not think, not wonder, not imagine, not obsess. Just breathe and have faith that everything will work out for the best. Accept what is, let go of what was, have faith in what will be. Or just simply have faith in yourself. And if I'm being as gracious as I possibly can, we should acknowledge that there is no benefit in being a navel-gazer, okay? in being woe is me. There is some benefit in being optimistic in most of life's circumstances. However, I protest. All of these are simply terrible. Tell John the Baptist in his prison cell as he awaits his own gruesome beheading. Faith is like Wi-Fi, John. It's invisible. It connects you to what you need. Tell the Christian martyrs thrown to the lions. Believe and you shall succeed. Tell the brother or sister in Christ with the terrible news of stage four cancer. Accept what is, let go of what was, have faith in what will be. Or tell Christ in the garden of Gethsemane as he is sweating drops of blood at the horror of the prospect of bearing under the full weight of God's wrath against the sins of the people. It doesn't really matter what you believe. Just so long as you're sincere, Jesus. And worst of all, God forbid, that we would ever give the impression to the world 
that there is any benefit at all in being a person full of faith or full of belief if it is not in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Faith or belief, meaningless if it's not in Christ. So when we read verses 1 through 3, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. We need to be very careful when we read that. So that we know what he is talking about and what he's not talking about. We need to make sure we take the author's meaning as he intended it. So the book of Hebrews in general, putting this text in its place, the book of Hebrews is a call to hold fast to Christ. The people that he's writing this letter to were teetering. They were wavering. They were deciding, essentially, should we hold fast to Christ or not? And we talked about last week that this centers on the implicit idea of to whom belong the promises. Who gets all of the inheritance that is promised to the people of old? This is the only way, I think, to make sense of the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. It's the only way to make sense of their current situation and the author's argumentation. These were not people who just simply got bored with Jesus. They are not people who had just received persecution and were now wondering if it was really worth it at all. They had received persecution before. These were really mature people, in one analysis, who were seriously considering whether or not this truth about Jesus was new and auxiliary and thus not necessary to make central. Who are the heirs? Who has claimed the longest, the oldest, and therefore the most legitimate faith heritage? And the author's answer, just like Paul in Galatians and Romans, is it is those who have faith, like Abraham did, and all the rest. And so it is in that context that we come to chapter 11. And in this Chapter specifically, as we get into the stories of all the people of old and how they persevered and how they had faith in God, it is very possible to miss the forest for the trees. Here are the things that he says about all these people of old through the chapter. This will give us a sense of how this all holds together. All of the praiseworthiness in these people in their lives was due to faith. Verse 2, they became heirs of righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 7, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Verse 13, but having seen these things from afar, they greeted them. And they all sought a better country. Or The author even uses the present tense. They seek a better country, a heavenly one. And all of these, all of these people of old, though commended through their faith, did not receive 
what was promised. Why? Because God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they, the people of old, should not be made perfect. And we will cover each one of these people of old in turn. But this, this summary, gives us a better view of what the author is doing. He shows us the forest so that we don't make ourselves the focus or make these individual men and women the focus in the wrong way. Here's an example of how you can do that. As you read your Old Testament or as you read Hebrews 11, a way that you can miss the forest for the trees. Let's just take an example that he doesn't mention so I don't uh, distract us too much. Let's say Daniel in the lion's den. Well, Daniel, he's wanting to be faithful to God. The king gives a command that everyone has to pray to him and anyone who doesn't for 30 days has to be thrown into the lion's den. And Daniel decides, no, I'm going to continue to pray in the sight of all the people and I will bear the consequences, whatever they are. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. I'm sorry if I'm giving you any spoilers, but he doesn't die. And he survives the entire night and Darius, or Darius, depending on how you pronounce it, he takes Daniel out, and the ones who conspired to throw him in, they throw, get thrown into the lions and they die. So if I were to say to you, you see, Daniel trusted in the Lord, and he therefore was saved from the lions. That's not what the author is saying with all of these people. The, while that is true, the point the author is making is that all of the blessings, all of the deliverances, all of the victories that they received in their lives, even through faith, was not the promise. It wasn't the fullness, and they knew it. And there were those who were thrown to the lions and died. And there were those who were sawn in two. So what do we say about them? They trusted in the Lord, didn't they, or didn't they? And so he is saying, rather, no, all those who were victorious and all of those who lost greatly, they knew that this wasn't it and they were looking for something better. They knew. They did not receive what was promised in its fullness. So right here, there's a very important conclusion that you and I have to take from this before we move into the bulk of what we're going to talk about this morning. If you read the Old Testament closely, at least with the same care that these saints paid attention to the promises, you would know, just as they knew, that fill in the blank with any blessing you want, the land, the tabernacle, the temple, Freedom from your enemies, an overflowing wine vat, crops that didn't fail, whatever that was, was not the full fulfillment of the promises of God. None of it was. So this prepares us to ask the first question. Basically, the rest of our time, we're going to be asking two questions, primarily of this phrase, if you look at it in verse 2. For by it, meaning by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So here's my first question. These are the types of questions I think you should be asking of the text and that we should be committed to answering. Is it faith in general or is it something 
more specific? Are these just really faith-filled people living faith-filled life? Are they just believers in some sense? Trust in some vague hope in the future that God will make it all right? Just believe in what will be. Is that why they received their commendation? With all that we've said so far, hopefully it is clear to you that the answer is certainly not faith in general. Being just generally faith-filled. On the other hand, it's still worth asking, what kind of faith did these people of old have? And my answer is this, and I think this is the, uh, the answer of the text. Because of their understanding of God himself, they knew that God was up to something bigger than everything they had ever experienced. I'll say that again. Because of their understanding of God himself, they knew that God was up to something bigger than, they had, than everything they had experienced. perfect example of this is David's response after God tells him the Davidic covenant or his promises to David. David goes into his chambers and he is reflecting on this promise that God has given him that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne. And David says in response, and this is wisdom for all mankind. He understood. He knew that it wasn't just about Solomon, that there was something bigger, more eternal going on, reaching down through the courses of history, wisdom for all mankind, not even just for Judah or Israel, the United Kingdom, for all mankind. He knew. And this is what Jesus himself says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So even Abraham, as he is sojourning, not receiving the full promises, he saw, Jesus himself says this of Abraham, he saw Jesus' day from afar and rejoiced. Because he saw it, not because he lived in it, but because he saw that day by faith. And Jesus himself, this is another example He looks at the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection and he says to them, God is called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he calls himself this throughout the Old Testament. Therefore, there must be a resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but the living. So this is all interwoven and we'll see examples of this as we investigate each of these different people as to how they had this understanding of faith. How was it that they knew that there was something more, that that God was up to something more behind the scenes embedded in the promises that they received? Where did they see it? And we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But to say it another way, even though they did not know the time or the name, or the face of the coming of Jesus, in some sense, they knew. In some sense, they knew that there would be one to come. And this is nothing new to you, hopefully, but here's the key. 
They knew that this coming one was the full fulfillment of all the promises that they received. See, it's one thing to say that, great, we'll receive all these promises from God. And, oh yeah, there's kind of some theme going on here. God revealing his purposes, his wisdom. And then one day some Messiah type is going to come and it'll be different. It's another thing to say, all of these promises are great, but they point to something altogether bigger and greater forever. That's what the author is saying, that they understood that the promises they received and all the blessings they got were not the full fulfillment. That no, it would take the coming of this one who was to come to bring the fullness. This is faith in Christ. If I could illustrate it with an analogy. Imagine that you've got Tons of different shadows, and they're all slightly different shapes. And when you overlay one shadow with another, the area that they overlay gets a little bit darker, right? And so as you stack up these shadows, as they're building up through God's revelation of himself through the Old Testament, eventually you begin to see this silhouette of a person. You begin to see the outlines of his character, of his purpose, of his coming. That is what was going on in the Old Testament. So it would be folly, it would be foolishness to settle for the shadow or your particular slice of the shadow. And that's what he is appealing to his hearers. Don't go back to the shadow. Don't do that. That that was pointing to what, and they knew it. The people who received these promises, they knew that it was shadow. They saw his form outlined in everything God said to them. And they trusted in that. They believed in that. They didn't settle for the blessings they received in their life. And they hoped in that day. That is faith in Christ before the coming of Christ. And that is why these men and women received their commendation. And there's this deep response as they see the wisdom of God unfolding and they see the outline of the person of Christ even thousands of years before he comes. There's, there's a deep response of yes, a deep yearning to see him even as we encounter Simeon and Anna in the temple and they're seeking for the kingdom of God and finally when they see the Messiah himself, they rejoice. They were looking for him. They knew that he was coming and they weren't happy with what they had until they saw him. So this, and I hope you can understand why this is important, this shows deep solidarity between the saints of old and with us. It wasn't another way to be saved. It was always by faith, as we talked about last week. And it was Trusting in God's purposes that he revealed to bring the coming one. Always. And so for us it is the same. We don't get to see Jesus face to face right now. But in the preaching of the gospel he is proclaimed to us. And his promises that point forward just as it pointed forward for them. We are united by faith to them. So we receive the promises as well. There is one family and household of God. That's the point. Deep solidarity. So the answer is no. It is not just general positivity. 
It is not just hope in the divine in some sense. It is not just belief that there is a God. It is not even the belief that Yahweh is the one true God. This faith, this faith that, the faith that the people of old had, was nothing less than a deep and full trust and a joy in the one sent from God. Even though they didn't know his name, they didn't know where necessarily it was going to be until much of the later prophets, and they didn't know what he would look like, they knew. And they rejoiced in it. So the author is encouraging his hearers, not just by saying it has always been by faith, that's what we talked about last week, but even more so, it has always been faith in Christ, the anointed one of God. And there are some characteristics of this faith. Centered on Christ, centered on God's promises, all fulfilled in Christ. Characteristics, I'll just give you four. It is patient through suffering. Think of all of the men and women of old that he's about to tell us about. Patient through suffering. Because they knew that this life isn't long enough or big enough to bring all of God's promises to fruition. It's not. The second characteristic is that there is joy, though you don't get the full blessing now. Because you have hope in God, because you know who He is, because you have deep confidence in His character, you are able to have joy, even though you will not receive all the promises in full in this life. I'll just say as an aside, God's faithfulness to his promise is the reason there is a resurrection. Do you understand that? That for God to be true to his promises to his people, therefore there must be a resurrection. And that's what Jesus is appealing to the Sadducees to see. Because he has made all of these great and magnificent promises, they can't fit in this life. And many of the people of old, the most faithful of all, didn't receive it. Abraham walked around as a sojourner in the land that he was told he was to be given. So therefore, there must be a resurrection. Because God is true and he is trustworthy. Third characteristic of this faith is that all your life is spent in the pursuit of promises yet unattained. Let me say that again. All your life spent in the pursuit of the promises yet unattained. Jesus himself says it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God. We know for certain that the kingdom of God will not come in its fullness until Christ returns one day. But we are told to spend our entire lives seeking that which has not yet fully come and that which will not fully come until all things are made new. But still spend all your lives doing it. Because that's what they did. And further, and this is probably the most important characteristic of this faith, it is the root of any and all obedience. It's very important. We'll spend some time looking at that. This is the second question. If it has always been by faith, if it has always been by faith in Christ and looking forward to Christ or looking back to Christ, why then the law? It's a big question. 
And it's a biblical question with biblical answers. The biblical authors actually ask this question. Why then the law? So that shows us we're kind of on the right track. And they each, especially Paul, have a lot to say in answer to that question. Why then the law? If it's always by faith, if it's always going to be by faith in this one that God has sent or the one that he would send back then, then why the law? So the Bible has a ton to say, but for today we're going to look at what the author of Hebrews has to say specifically. And even more so, what he's saying and not saying in chapter 11. So he raises the question, I think, by silence. So if you look forward with me to, to, uh, this is verse 23. It's recounting the life of Moses, going back to his parents. Look at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And here, here's, just as an aside, look closely at verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That's the last time chapter 11 mentions Moses. Is there any life event in Moses' experience that you might want to underscore? The law... But he doesn't mention it. And then, again, if you keep reading, by faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Did he just kind of pass over a significant event in the life of Israel going from Red Sea to Jericho? Anything? Anything skipped over? Yes, Sinai. The giving of the law, the wandering in the wilderness, that's, that's a big chunk. And to be fair, he spent a lot of time talking about that in the chapters leading up to this. And he's going to talk about Sinai when we get to chapter, 11, but the po- uh, chapter 12. Rather, but the point there is contrast. You have not come to the terror and gloom of Sinai, but rather to the angels and the gathering of the firstborn in heaven, Mount Zion. So he brings up this contrast. He he shows the point by leaving it out. And at this point, we don't have time to recount all that the author has said about the law, the role of the law, the role of that first covenant in the life of the people of God. There's a ton to say. But what he says about Abraham specifically gives us a clue. Look at verse 8. Just these first four words. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That's the point. And it was the case for so many others through this entire chapter. By faith, they obeyed. 
It was in faith, in God's promises, yes, in his promises, yet unfulfilled, unseen, but foretold that they obeyed. Not just general trust in God, that there is a God, or or right doctrine. They believed in God's faithfulness in the world to come, and through that faith they obeyed. By faith they obeyed. The author could have said, let's just be fair here, the author could have said, by faith the people received the law. He could have thrown that in. But why didn't he do that? I think there are two reasons. Number one, the people were, for the most part, unfaithful. The author himself has made that point many places. They were unable to enter because of unbelief, which is equated with disobedience in the book of Hebrews. And number two, and this is more the point, the author is laboring to show that faith is more foundational than obedience. You've got to get that faith. And again, not just general faith or hope, but faith in Christ, faith in God's promises, trust that He will do what He has said He will do, that is more foundational, or ought to be more foundational in your heart than any attempt to obey. And if you get it inverted, and I'll just go ahead and say it here, you'll ruin your life. You really will. To say this another way, any of those people who obeyed, any of those people who received their commendation, whether it was obedience to a command or a specific revelation, they did so by faith. This gives us the tools we need to kill the legal spirit in our heart. The reason I believe the author is seeking to do this is that part of our sinful nature is that we shroud our unbelief with rules. We hide the fact that we don't believe God with keeping rules. Is that not the very nature of the temptation here for his hearers? They started wavering in their belief in Christ, and so they wanted to go back to rules. They didn't want to start living a licentious life, a life without God, a life without any type of obedience. They wanted to go back to rigid rule because they started to lack faith in Christ. Is that not what Paul says to the Galatians as well? Having begun by faith, are you now going to be perfected by works? You foolish Galatians, why are you going back to law, to rule? This helps us understand something very important about ourselves and about God. We would rather have a long set of rules than the living God. That's the nature of yours and my rebellion. That's the nature of sin, that we would rather have do's and don'ts than direct access to the living God. 
can call it a rule or a roadmap to live our lives by. There's just one example from the fullness of biblical revelation. The idea of being a sojourner or an exile. Is that an encouraging title to call yourself? I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile, here I have no lasting home, no lasting city. Because if that's the case, then our hope must be in the next life. The the majority of our hope must be there. The majority of what we're looking forward to, the blessing, the inheritance is there as the heavens and earth are remade. But because we're not satisfied, because we're not contented to live this life as sojourner, as exile, just give us rules to help us ourselves feel better about ourselves. Because you can keep rules without faith. Just ask the Pharisees. And the Pharisee within each of us insists on law, not because we love the law of God, but because our idolatry of the things that can be seen, security, stability, land, heritage, in short, earthly blessing. Because we want those things, just give us rules so that we know how we can make God bless us now. I don't want to wait for then. It's the same error of the prosperity gospel. It's just really highlighted. But we all have that spirit within us. Just give us law. Just give us rules to keep so that we can know kind of this combination to set God to so that we can receive his blessings in this life. The point of chapter 11 is to show it went really badly for some of these people. Sawn in two. And they obeyed. People of whom the world was not worthy. I mean, I, I don't know what's going to be on my tombstone, but I bet it's not going to say one of whom the world was not worthy, right? That is such high praise. Yet they did not receive the promises. And to live a life of faith in God, of trust in Him, of holistic trust in a person, man, that's so much more than rule. What God desires is a heart of one who trusts Him and delights in Him more than He desires one who keeps all of His rules without that heart. It's a very carefully worded sentence. Or to say it another way, if your obedience is not out of faith, a deep trust in trusting yourself fully to Him, then it doesn't count as obedience. But oh, how we want law. We just, we do. Want to be told what to do and what not to do. I've mentioned this analysis before, but here's what's really going on when you get to the bottom of it. It's that we don't want God to touch this. So just tell me what to do. Tell me how to act out here. Tell me what to say, what not to say. What to eat, what not to eat. What to drink, what not to drink. But don't touch this. Don't change me. And that's in each of us. 
And when we present the gospel to people who don't understand, we run the risk of giving them the impression that Christianity mainly is about a new way of life. Rules. There are rules. There is a way of living that pleases God. We'll get to discuss that here in a little bit. But the point is radical change of your heart. That you would love God Himself in the person of Jesus. And from that love of God Himself in the person of Jesus. Then the Spirit gives you the energy you need to obey. If I could quote from a song to kind of encapsulate this legal spirit, this heart that is in with, within each of us that needs to be killed. It's a song called New Law. Don't teach me about politics and government. Just tell me who to vote for. Don't teach me about truth and beauty. Just label my music. Don't teach me how to live like a free man. Just give me a new law. I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy. So just bring it down from the mountain to me. And I would go a few extra very necessary steps to illustrate the real problem with this legal spirit. Don't teach me about the treasure hidden in the field. Just tell me to be a good boy. Don't teach me about being born again by the Spirit. Just tell me what I have to do. Don't teach me about hunger and thirst for the Lord. Just tell me to pull myself together. Don't teach me about the cost of disciple. Just just tell me facts and figures. Don't teach me about real faith in Christ. Just tell me how to be happy and stable. Don't teach me about the new heavens and earth. Just tell me how to have a good life. I don't want to know if the answers aren't easy. So just bring them down from the mountain to me. Just give me a new law. Kill it in yourself. That legal spirit, that craving for do's and don'ts. Not allowing your heart to be exposed to the work of God by the Spirit to change you. To get rid of things. To bring in new things into your heart. To alter who you are in your essence. So that you would, from faith and love, obey. And these two questions, is it faith in general or is it something more specific? Or is, if, if it's always been by faith, then why then the law? These two meet together in the person of Christ himself. Faith in Christ is the only possible route of a life that pleases God. Faith in Christ is the only possible, possible route of a life that pleases God. Because otherwise, if it's not the root, you're just going to be frustrated and angry and trying to white-knuckle obedience your entire life, and it's not going to work, and it's not even going to count for obedience in the end. So just a few points of applying this to our lives. 
Number one, the problem is not, first and foremost, disobedience. It is unbelief. That's so foundational. It took me a long time to see that. The problem, first and foremost, is not disobedience. It is unbelief. Let's go back to the garden, shall we? When the enemy was tempting our first parents, the centerpiece of the temptation was this. You shouldn't trust him. You shouldn't believe him. You shouldn't believe that he is all and only for your good. He's holding something back from you. Therefore, you should disobey because there's something better for you through the path of disobedience. And then they send. Unbelief. Not believing in the goodness of God. Not believing that he is for us is the root of all disobedience. How else would the author interchange very easily unbelief and disobedience with respect to the desert generation? All of those who fell in the wilderness not being able to enter the promised land. They fell because of disobedience. They fell because of unbelief. It's the same thing because all disobedience is rooted in unbelief and all unbelief will result in disobedience. Number two, see that the law is your friend, (laughs) a guide, a light. The law reveals who God is. The law is grace in action. But you must love and trust in Christ before obedience will make any sense to you. How in the world would the parable of the treasure hidden in the field make any sense to a person who doesn't first love the treasure hidden in the field? So what we're doing to ourselves is we're, we're trying to wring out obedience without first settling in our hearts the fact that we love and cherish and desire Christ above all things. And we're just trying to make ourselves go sell everything we have for the sake of a treasure we don't love. Think of it this way. Here's a perfect analogy. So every year, gentlemen, Valentine's arrives. And if you're a planner, it's not a bad time for you. If you're not a planner, uh, there's a sense of guilt and frustration because it's hard to get things together and to do it in a special way. But if everything you're doing in that moment is out of a sense of obligation and not out of love for your wife, She's One, she's going to be able to know. And two, you're not going to be fulfilled or enjoy it anyway. Rather, Valentine's Day, this is just uh, for free, is an opportunity to show your wife the love you already have through a cultural convention we call Valentine's Day. But if it's all of a sense of, I hate it when this comes around each time, each year, and I've got to buy flowers or chocolate, it's so frustrating, here you go. And it could be the best bouquet you could find. It could be the most expensive box of chocolates you could get. The best card. You could put it together yourself. But if it is out of a sense of, I hate doing this, it won't count. It won't matter. So the law, all the commands of Scripture, show us what love and faith look like. Number three. So stop 
trying to white-knuckle obedience without first settling in your heart a love for God. This is in no way trying to give you permission to open season on sin. Well, I don't have love for God, so I just I better go live a life of sinfulness. That is not what I'm saying. Flee from temptation. Jesus even says, pluck out your eye if that would help. But the reality is you may be using the wrong cure. Back in the time of uh, the founding of this country, bleeding was a very popular medical procedure. So I'm not saying don't focus on the fact that you have a sickness. It's just stop using the wrong cure. Because you're going to kill yourself if you keep using the wrong cure. So how was it that all these people of old received their commendation? Faith. How was it that they all obeyed at such great cost? It was faith. I want you to see and feel how liberating this is. Some of you might be so exhausted and so tired of trying to obey. You find little or no energy to attain the costly upward call of God in Christ. You find little or no zeal for repentance. You see in yourself little or no delight in the law of God in your inner being. The problem is that you have tried to love and live according to the law without first loving and entrusting yourself to the lawgiver himself. So be liberated Be liberated to love and believe. Faith is itself the first reflex of a love for God. Believe in God himself. Trust him. Entrust yourself to him. And any amount of time spent trying to nurture a deep trust in God and to nurture a love for Him will be 10,000 times more effective than trying to produce obedience in you and trying to get it to work by your own strength to kill sin and bring holiness to life. It's not motivated by and pushed forward by the wind in your sails of love and deep trust in God. It's just going to make you a miserable Pharisee for the rest of your life. Don't do it. I love you. Don't do it. Number four. Do not separate Christ from his blessings. One of the reasons you might have trouble putting it all together is that Jesus has been presented to you in all your life, maybe in your Sunday school class, maybe in books you've read, maybe in songs, or even in, God help us, the preaching of the word, that Jesus is a means to an end. Jesus is maybe the great blessing giver, and what we're really about is getting the blessing. Here's what happens when you do that, and when you think that way. Faith in Christ is important because... It's the only way to get to heaven. While that is true, that severely misses the point. Jesus, I guess he's important because he died to forgive my sins. While that is true, it severely stops short of the main point. 
Jesus, uh, he's important to me. He helps me through difficult times as my helper and friend. While that is true, it stops so short of the glorious truth. And what is the glorious truth? It is that Jesus himself is the treasure. He is the grace of God. He is our propitiation. He is the reward. And gaining him is worth any amount of suffering and pain that it takes to get you there. Friends, if I could make you understand one thing for my entire time here with you, it would be that Jesus does not come in the flesh, live, die, rise again, to be the way that we get salvation. That makes Jesus a means to an end. Rather, All of God's redemptive works exist as a plan from before all time to bring you to know and enjoy Christ Jesus forever. Salvation is the means. Jesus himself is the end. You've got to get that. And there's no way really to shorten it down into a cute thing that you could put on a bumper sticker. I'm sorry. It's more Nuance than that. There's, there's specifics that you've got to say. Jesus came to save you, to bring you to himself. That's why forgiveness and propitiation and sanctification, justification, all of it. That's why that was necessary. As he prays to the Father in his final prayer in John 17. I desire that those that you have given me would be with me to see me in the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the earth. The people of old, and this is the point of Hebrews 11, the people of old knew and trusted him that he was going to be better. He is the something better. That's the point when you get to the last few verses of chapter 11. He then makes the switch to in chapter 12, to say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, not merely as example, but as the goal, as the better thing. And they saw his day and rejoiced, even from afar. Number five, since it is by faith and not by law, then God is not so much interested in what you can give to him. If it is by grace, through faith, then God is not so much interested in what you can give to him. Stop thinking of your life in those terms. And if you can, it's so freeing. God will be known and seen and rejoiced in as the only real gift giver, or else the universe would be undone. And see that very clearly in Ephesians 1, that the display of the glory of God's grace is the reason this universe exists. So you think you can give something to God? No, it's His grace. It's all of grace. So stop trying to give something to God. It's all His anyway. As Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive Nothing. 
Faith in Christ is embracing him as the source of everything. Even whatever praise and obedience and joy you would have in him originates from him and faith in him. Some of you, even right now, might be living under the oppression of the law, under a false understanding of the law, and it is tyranny in your life. Because you're trying to do something that simply cannot be done. You're trying to offer to God something. And it simply can't be done. Not that the law is bad in any way. But it, com- but it commands what you and me on our own cannot give. I mean, has our experience not shown us that? <laughs> so stop trying. All is of grace. And the point is that we would love and delight in the fact that it is all of grace. And Jesus Christ is the grace of God. So all of your life must be for Him. This is a high and heavy calling of obedience. But it is not something you can give. It is freely given to you in Christ. And if it bothers you to hear me say that you cannot really give God anything, then you need to seriously consider whether or not you are under the tyranny of a legal spirit. As one of my favorite pastors says, the one most indebted to the grace of God wins. That's how you should think about your life. Any progress in obedience, any any increase in the joy of Him, any increase of beholding Him and wanting to live your life for Him is all of grace anyway. So you're just going to fall deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into God's grace. And your excitement about falling deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into debt into God's grace is what should drive you and give you energy for your life. It's not, okay, God did this for me, now I'm going to do something for Him. No, It's all of grace. And that changes us at the core so that we can obey. And so that it counts for obedience. To say it another way, the one who most loves the fact that anything and everything comes from Christ, yes, even the will and delight to obey, will be the most happy and obedient person. Number six, the gospel, therefore, is the only good news. If it has always been by faith, and it has always been by faith in Christ, then the gospel is literally the only good news. Because it reveals God's purposes coming to us and the fulfillment of all these promises. And it shows us what that, that overlaying of shadows showed in the silhouette of the person of Christ. He's now here. Everything else isn't good news. It just happens. Even things that you might call blessing, if they are not rooted in Christ, aren't good news. And if you realize that the gospel is the, literally the only good news, then you will be willing, like Moses, to leave the pleasures of this world to embrace the reproach of Christ. 
Because the gospel is the only good news. And lastly, and this might be hard for some of you to hear, any experience, difficulty, trial, blessing, season of confusion, pain, any experience that increases or deepens your trust in and belief in and faith in the person of Jesus is worth it. Isn't that the example of all these men and women of old? That anything, any cost in your life, pain, suffering, frustration, whatever, if it deepens your trust in Christ, if it deepens your love for Him, if it deepens your desire to entrust yourself to Him, it's worth it. Because Jesus himself is the fulfillment of every one of God's promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Please liberate us with a view of his superior glory and beauty from our legal spirit. Help us love your law as the way that you have shown us that we love you. A path of obedience, a path of love, a path of faith. But may we not jump there first before we have settled in our hearts whether or not we truly, deeply love and desire you in the person of your Son. May it be so for his namesake. Amen.